Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound community. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a public affair. My name is Nadal Makashvi, and I'll be your guest host for the hour. Etsy Denure is off this week. Our pre-midterm coverage continues here on WORT, and with less than two weeks left before the midterms, the country's political environment is almost impossible to ignore. Wisconsin is a 50-50 state, which means in certain races up and down the ballot, Republicans and Democrats both have a chance of recapturing seats in our gubernatorial, congressional, and legislative races. And the tactics they've used to drum up support have ranged from the hopeful, uh, the traditional, to the aggressive, and the new. Chief among them, the political branding of some candidates as leftists, socialists, radicals, and sometimes even extremists. You might have heard these words in debates, on television ads, or seen them in flyers and newspapers, but often they are delivered to us with little nuance and a whole lot of propaganda. So today we thought we'd delve into what it means to be the left in today's political landscape, its implications, its history, and its future. And my guest for the hour, a very special guest for us today, is author and journalist Raina Lipsitz. Her work has appeared in Al Jazeera America, The Appeal, The Atlantic, Nation, and New Republic, among many other publications. Her latest book, The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, is the first book to look closely at this new movement. Her phenomenal insider's account of how young progressives are influencing American politics and culture investigates the strategies employed by new movements and their relationships to politicians from Bernie Sanders and AOC to Nancy Pelosi. The book also describes how the generational focus on insurgent electoral campaigns both aims to transform the Democratic Party and threatens to be captured by it. Thanks so much for being here, Reina. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. This book was truly a tour de force and captured the world uh, of young progressives or leftists in a way that is really rare and hard to find. You know, I say this as a leftist myself. Uh, I truly did need this read and the history that it, it, it uncovered. What inspired you uh, to write this book? Well, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. And I, I just say a few things inspired me. Um, I wanted to write the book because I had been interviewing a lot of new progressive candidates. Many of them were younger people, but not all of them. And I wanted to paint a more nuanced portrait of where these kind of energized young people were coming from and what they really stood for, aside from the kind of propaganda that you were describing at the, at the top of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really wanted to talk to folks on the ground who are sort of doing the day, day-to-day political work and not just um, sort of celebrity, political celebrities. Mm. And the the kind of second part of what I wanted to do really was to set the record straight about who is powering the new left. I think much like the civil rights movement, the women's movement, um, LGBTQ liberation, lots of movements of a previous era, there are a few big names that everybody knows. And then mm. there are lots of lots and lots of people behind the scenes doing the work on the ground not getting much credit. And I think more often than not, those people whose names we don't know are women uh, and or people of color. Mm -hmm. When did the project start? Was it the 2018 elections or when Donald Trump was elected? I really started working on it in uh, 2019, 2018 and 2019. So 2018 was when I met AOC and interviewed Mm -hmm. her for for the nation. And that was kind of the entry into this project, which originally was going to be much more focused on AOC herself, but mm. we, we kind of brought in the view, and I'm really glad that we moved away from her as an, as an individual and more towards this um, opportunity for me to basically profile a lot of different kinds of people across the country. Mm-hmm. How did you come to the decision to make it, uh, you know, readers can get uh, kind of a firsthand look at interviews and then also uh, you kind of go into organizational structures that have influenced the left. How did you decide on the structure of the book? 
that was it was very improvisational. <laughs> I've never written <laughs> a book before, so I I had a lot of the um, a lot of it. I was really making up as I as I went along, and it had a lot to do also with who I could talk to and when. You know, I mean, partly. I moved away for for philosophical reasons from focusing only on AOC, mm. but, and partly also I lost access to AOC yeah. after she, uh, you know, became a sitting congresswoman. So it, you know, that it was sort of both what I wanted to do and what I could do with the time that I had and the contacts that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our listeners, can you explain what the left is? Uh, so that's a good question. I think, you know, over Labor Day weekend this year, I attended a nationwide socialism conference organized by Haymarket Books. I was in Chicago, and there was a lot of talk at that conference about how there are multiple lefts, and, mm-hmm. you know, the left is not as unified or cohesive as the right. That's one of the big sort of um, political issues facing the left. I guess I would say that the the left is, is pretty broad in a U- U.S. context, in part because we don't have a parliamentary system. There isn't a lot of opportunity to express your politics outside of the two party, you know, system that we, that we have. So Mm -hmm. I think the left is includes a lot of different people, includes organizers who kind of disdain Bernie Sanders, think that he's insufficiently radical, think he has racial blind spots and also the people who, who wept when he won Nevada, you know, those are, uh, lots of different groups of people. It includes prison abolitionists, but also Medicare for all activists. And I think one thing that has been very funny to me when I've been talking about this book and doing interviews is that a lot of people just look at the title and assume that it's about uh, democratic, just Democrats, you know, regular mm-hmm. uh, Democratic Party activists and people who always vote democratic and that's not exactly what it's about it's about people who are to the left of the of the democratic party which you know includes a number of people who still vote democratic if you could pinpoint i mean from the social media and television that i've consumed from a faraway glance it almost seems like this new democratic socialist movement specifically was something born uh, during the time of AOC's uh, first election campaign. Uh, Would you say that it was uh, earlier than that? Like when was, if if you could give us an overview of specifically the history of the democratic socialist movement here in in America? I mean, you know, I think something that most people don't know and that I didn't even know the full extent of until I started writing the book is that the U.S. does have a socialist tradition, right? And we had socialists in office in the nineteen-teens uh, and twenties and thirties, and you know, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of mm-hmm. America, which is probably at this point the most famous uh, and also the largest socialist formation in the U.S. Um, DSA has existed in its current form since nineteen eighty-two, which is also the year that I was born. So. They they actually have been around for a while, but they were extremely marginal until really uh, after 2016, which is mm-hmm. when they saw these, this huge, huge boom in membership. And it went not overnight, but within a few um, a few years from 6,000 members nationwide to around 90,000, which is where they are now. Mm. If you if you watch Fox News, and I try not to watch Fox News a lot. Uh, but it seems like there's this growing movement to interchange the word socialist and uh, Democrat um, a lot. And they, and and a lot of Republican pundits kind of uh, use one to define the other. And I was wondering if you could go into kind of what differentiates uh, so- democratic socialism from the modern day Democratic Party. Sure. So I, you know, that is a really interesting what you identified as this right-wing effort to tie all Democrats mm-hmm. to, to socialism. I've also seen sort of the mirror image of that on the pages of the New York Times, which is widely mm. perceived to be a, a liberal outlet, you know, and they they refer to AOC often as a liberal or, mm. you know, they refer to Bernie as a liberal. These are not actually interchangeable terms. So I think part of the the 
idea behind that is just to erase the socialist legacy that we do have in the United mm-hmm. States that people don't know about. Um, and part of it is because in the, in the case of Republicans, it's because they think it's politically toxic, which in some environments and, and some contexts it can be. I would say that the difference is really that anyone who calls themselves a democratic socialist is pretty far to the left of the contemporary uh, Democratic Party platform, right? And and democratic socialists have a set of policies that they want to see passed, including a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, um, student student and medical debt cancellation, things like that that are not uh, part of the official Democratic Party platform. Mm-hmm. Well, you open your book uh, talking about these figures that have, you know, taken mainstream media by, by storm these past few years, and certainly figures that I've looked to as, as you know, setting kind of the standard of, of, of a new politics. What has been the influence of specifically Bernie Sanders, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders in contemporary politics, and more specifically, uh, you know, his influence on young people? I think Bernie has, he really inspired millions of people who had given up on politics and um, lost faith in our political system and and were quite frankly in a state of despair. And he is somebody who, who, you know, he's been around, he's been in national politics for a long time, for many decades, but he didn't really become a household name until 2015. Uh, and I think what people respond to about Bernie, there are a few things. He created a positive impression of left-wing politics and in the minds of millions of Americans. Uh, but I think his biggest legacy really has been just conveying to people, not just young people, but especially young people, that someone in a position of authority truly understands what they're going through um, on, a, on a daily basis and actually wants them to have a better life. That's a, it, it sounds like such a simple thing, but it's something that it's a feeling that a lot of people in the U.S. had um, had been missing for a very long time. And especially after Trump, who's such a he's such a contrast to Trump, just his whole his entire persona and also just the the care and concern that that marks everything that he that he does. Um, and I think it really there were a number of things he said and did that really resonated with people. To me, the biggest one was when he said at a rally that, that he co-hosted with AOC uh, in 2019, he said, are you willing to fight for that person who you don't even know as much as you're willing to fight for yourself? And that kind of um, broadening of the American project, not just me and my family, but everyone, everyone who lives in the United States was something that, that was tremendously appealing and inspiring to a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. What was the reception of Senator Bernie Sanders uh, when he ran for for president from the Democratic Party, specifically the establishment that we hear a lot about? Um, well, I you know the establishment of the the establishment Democrats don't don't like Bernie, and mm-hmm. I mean you know, and they did everything they could to um, put obstacles in his way, and you know he. I am not somebody who thinks that Bernie, I think Bernie lost the primaries, right? I I think that he, there are a lot of reasons why he probably was going to lose even without interference from the party leadership. But I do also think that the party leadership demonstrated a a real hostility to him. And we saw that in, in leaked emails. We saw that in public statements. We saw that in various procedural maneuvering. And we saw that in 2020 when uh, when former President Barack Obama called people up and said, you know, you, you have to come together behind Joe Biden and, and clear the way so that we can stop Bernie. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair here on WRT in Madison. Uh, that was author and journalist Raina Lipsitz. And if you would like to give us your take on the left or have any questions for Raina, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, I think you mentioned this a little bit, but I wanted to go into it a little bit more Um is the massive appeal of both figures like Bernie and AOC based on who they are as, as people, uh, the way they talk, the way they message, uh, or is it perhaps more so what they stand for, or is it both? Um, how does that 
you know, contrast to the status quo? And if it is only because of who they are as people, can it be uh, emulated in the future? Um, those are really good questions. I think that I think it really is both. I mean, I, I would like to say as a, a leftist, oh, it's entirely their platform and their policy commitments. And I do think that those things matter and that people responded to uh, what they were actually proposing and and their their actual policy commitments. Um, but I also think that you can't really discount how people come across and and what they represent and how people see them. And it is important. Politics is a, especially now, it's a visual medium. People mm. look at you, they listen to you, they they see what you look like and they hear what you sound like. And I think AOC is someone a lot of people relate to and are inspired by for different reasons. And some of those reasons are related to her personal identity. You know, she's a young woman of color. She has worked as a bartender. She has faced student debt. Her family faced home foreclosure. Uh, and her politics were really formed in response to social and economic conditions that she herself experienced firsthand. I think in Bernie's case, he had a different uh, sort of set of personal traits that people admired and responded to. One is that he's just an honest, he, he comes across as an honest and genuine mm. person. And he's somebody, you know, love him or hate him. Bernie is sort of always himself. Um, and people who love him love that about him. And, and people who see him as a, as a villain, you know, they don't like the self that he is. And so that's not an appealing quality. Um, so they, they had, they, appealed to people for pretty different reasons. And I think some of it is, uh, some of it could be replicated, um, but, you know, made specific by the specific person. And some of it you just can't imitate because they are uh, unique, one, one of a kind people in their own rights. Uh, in the book, you speak a lot about people that have been inspired by, by, both Bernie and AOC and the kind of that role of identity and diversity. Do you think the simplicity of their message uh, kind of helped make politics more accessible to those groups that have kind of been gatekept from or gatekept from, from politics by the establishment, for example? Um, yes, I do. I think that, that you know, so Bernie has this kind of radical humanism. He talks a lot about standing for everybody, that everybody matters, everyone who lives in this country matters and deserves a certain standard of living. And I think that that was something that people hadn't heard in a long time and, and hadn't heard so simply expressed. Um, you know, people know the difference between being pandered to and condescended to and really having someone stand for you. And I think the Democratic Party has done plenty of pandering to people from different groups. But if your message is just sort of, you know, uh, just sort of naming groups of people like, and we also love African-Americans and we also stand for LGBTQ, Amer you know, kind of just listing those categories is not, um, it's not that appealing to people. What they want is somebody who actually understands them and sees them in their full humanity. Uh, I think part of the issue for the Democratic Party and a way in which it's being outmaneuvered is that if you stand for diversity sort of apart from a broader ideology or, or a defined set of policy commitments, it's pretty easy to uh, counter that by, for example, elevating women like Marjorie Taylor Greene or mm -hmm. running Latina women candidates against AOC in New York. And that's what the right has done. That's what the Republican Party has done. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a, I can't say there's a correlation, but certainly something that has grown parallel to this new uh, leftist movement is this idea of, of cancel culture, especially one that's born of, you know, all these identities being uh, brought to the light and, and politicians like Bernie and AOC fighting for uh, those that are marginalized. Could you go into a little bit about uh, the role of identity and how it's been weaponized sort of uh, by, by the right against the left? Sure. So I... I... I think that um, 
it comes this the focus on on diversity and identity comes on the left comes from a good place right it comes from a, a commitment to egalitarianism from a commitment to multiculturalism and to wanting everybody's voice to be heard i think the other side of it is that for people who are used to being considered let's say the default human right like a, a white man is just sort of the default human being, the default person around which our laws have been built and for whom our society has been structured. And people who are used to being just sort of, you know, quote unquote, regular people and are suddenly, suddenly feel like, oh, their identity is a, a liability and, it, and it's alienating for them. They don't think of them, they don't want to think, oh, what is my... Um, you know, moral responsibility as a white man. And I think a lot of people don't actually see themselves in those terms, right? I think a lot of white men do not think, oh, I am a, because they haven't had to be conscious of their, mm -hmm. of their identity in the way that other groups have had to be, have been made to feel conscious of, of their differences. Um, so I think it's a really complicated question and issue. And I do think that the right has done a very good job of, uh, taking these feelings that people have of being passed by or or robbed of something that they see as their birthright and really turning that into a a political weapon mm -hmm. that's been pretty effective a phrase I work in in state government and kind of and within the Democratic Party but a phrase that I often hear in our politics is that the Democratic Party is a large tent or umbrella meaning it you know houses a lot of diversity like you know di diversity in opinions in race and economic status uh, and at times this means that consensus is hard and concession is common and sometimes it's used as a scapegoat uh, for a lot of policy especially progressives uh, uh, policy that progressives want to pass and so for a lot of young people and leftists that I I know uh, concessions that democratic the democratic party takes seem to come often at the expense of the working class or people of color uh, but the left of, of equal diversity, and I sometimes I think maybe you could argue more diversity, doesn't seem to run into as much of a problem sticking to a core set of policy values. I was hoping you could speak a bit about the left's non-negotiables uh, and how that rigidity either aids or hinders the movement. Sure. Um, I, well, I think not everybody on the left would agree with me about this, but for me, I see uh, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, abortion rights, cancellation of student and medical debt, mm -hmm. um, and, and serious efforts to protect civilians from police violence as kind of core left-wing demands uh, mm -hmm. with really widespread public support. Mm -hmm. And that is a platform that is really compelling to a lot of young people who are, uh, frankly, very, very sick and tired of being told, oh, we can't. Um, you know, student debt doesn't matter because not everybody went to college or uh, somehow police brutality, police violence and the stripping away of your abortion rights. Somehow those are just sort of divisive social issues rather than uh, issues of life and death and, and human rights issues, as I think the people who, who work, care the most about those issues see them. So there's been, there certainly has been a lot of throwing under the bus of young people and progressives and working people uh, by the Democratic Party. I also think that, it, you know, it is a strength to have a consistent platform to mm -hmm. know what you stand for and what you mean, which the left does in a way that the party doesn't. And, you know, that's, that's for structural reasons. I mean, I think that the party, um, the reason that the left can take those stands and the party can't or won't is that the left does not get money from almost anyone, <laughs> you know, we're, mm. we're vastly outspent um, by the right and ha and the right has vastly more money and, uh, and social and political power. But the Democratic Party relies for most of its money these days on uh, wealthy individuals, wealthy families, people who live in upscale suburbs, and if those people don't want their taxes to go up, if those people don't want to dismantle the insurance industry, the health insurance industry, if they don't want to, for example, defund the police, 
the party is not going to to stand for those things. How has the left, when it comes to elected officials that have carried, for example, uh, the DSA endorsement, how has the left kind of made peace with the comp- the complexity of, you know, running on something and then being in office and having to take votes uh, that either differ from the, the platform that uh, the Democratic Socialists want or, you know, or, or, you know, very slightly or isn't as, as all-encompassing as was asked from them during campaign season. Have there been tensions that you've obser- observed uh, throughout the country when it comes to DSA elected officials that have had to make hard choices? Yeah, there have been. I, that I write about that a little bit in my book. There's in Chicago, the um, Chicago DSA, I know, censured a, a Chicago alderman because he mm. voted he voted the in a way that was contrary to, to what DSA wanted him to do on the city budget. I think that's something that the left really is in the process of figuring out. And some people would say, well, you know, part of pursuing and achieving power as a democratic socialist is means that you you kind of have to be willing to, in some cases, maybe give up your your position, give up your power, uh, in order to to be consistent and represent the organization and the people who put you in in office. So I think, you know, depending on what the issue is, some people in DSA would say you have to vote how DSA has democratically decided you should vote and how our members want you to vote no matter what. And other people have, have drawn the line a little bit differently and have said, you know, it's important to that we have these people in Congress. And as long as they're with us, let's say 99% of the time, we're going to give them a pass on this one vote. I don't think there is a, a consistent or clear standard yet for that. I think that's something that we we're figuring out as we grow our power. That's that's incredibly interesting. You wrote, and this stuck out to me, millions of Americans suffer from economic uh, precarity, housing insecurity, and anti-immigrant laws and policies. The suffering has only increased during Trump's presidency and beginning in 2020, a global pandemic. My question is, has the U.S., you know, for so long been suffering from the ails of capitalism and white supremacy, uh, kind of been barreling towards this political revolution all along? Yes, I think in a in a way we definitely have been, and of course there have been different moments of upheaval and and political revolution uh, throughout our country's history. But I think right now, part of why the left is newly prominent and uh, is that a lot of the people and things that we were relying on to to fix things or at least improve them, uh, these things that are still major problems in American life, have failed to do so. You know, a lot of the people who are around my age, so people in their mid-30s to early 40s, actually were were working very hard to, some of them worked very hard to elect Barack Obama and then worked very hard while he was in office to advance certain progressive priorities. And that didn't happen. And they were really disappointed about that. And I think that um, just sort of that frustration that a lot of people feel that we've been doing the same things for for decades in this country and they're not working. They haven't solved climate change, which we started talking about in Congress in the 1970s. They haven't done anything to stem the ongoing um, epidemic of gun violence. Uh, We haven't fixed our public education system. We haven't solved homelessness or even really put a dent in it. We haven't reined in police brutality. And uh, people see that and and they're incredibly frustrated by it. To people, I mean, this is from my personal experience, but I remember when I was running and I I did get the endorsement of the Democratic Socialists of America, the Madison chapter and the national chapter. Um, There was a lot of, of talk about you know, if we truly believe in in the platform that DSA encourages, why are we running within the two party system? Why are we running as as Democrats? And I was wondering if you could maybe expand on that. Is the is the rise of the left a fix uh, or maybe a danger, depending on how one sees it, to the two party system that we have? How has it interacted uh, with our two party system? Sure. There's a, I mean, there is an ongoing tension within DSA uh, between people who think that 
we need to use all the tools at our disposal, mm-hmm. and which in- includes running people on the Democratic Party line mm-hmm. and people who think that that uh, that running having any sort of relationship with the Democratic Party is contrary to our goals and our demands, yeah. and that all all we should be doing is trying to form a third party that represents the interests of labor and and working people. You know, there's a long history of that. There's a lot that's been written about the Working Families Party, which was, you know, essentially trying to do that. There was an American Labor Party at some point. There was an effort just in the last couple of years to start something called a People's Party. Um, And I'm really sympathetic to this idea that we need a third party that actually represents working people. However, I really don't see that. I don't see what the realistic plan is for achieving that kind of a party in the next 10 years, let's say. I think that the our electoral laws are such that it is incredibly difficult to get uh, consolidate real support for a third party candidate and to build third party infrastructure. We saw that with the Green Party. We've seen that with working families. There are only a few uh, sort of states and places in this country where you can even get on another kind of ballot line it's just very very difficult and the deck is it's a structural problem that we have to really reform our electoral laws and make it much easier to run for office make it much easier to qualify for the ballot Uh, and until we do those things i think i think we're kind of stuck in the Mm -hmm. system that we have and i i have a lot of um i think it's a good thing i have a lot of sympathy for the idea that dsa has figured out at least in the short term, how to, how to, you know, benefit from that and how to harness our power and use the Democratic Party line to advance our goals. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in again, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. Uh, If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet at us at WORT Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. Uh, So you mentioned in your book that certain conservative critiques of the left have been that leftists are hostile to America and that you can't win over a large swathe of the U.S. electorate by uh, denigrating a country that many, including many immigrants, still take pride in belonging to and consider a beacon of hope. And it seems to me, you know, from the stories of candidates that you profile in your book, that almost the opposite is true, that the leftists that you interview uh, love America so much and the democracy that it promises, maybe it doesn't live up to, uh, to the point that they're willing to criticize it and reshape it into something better and work uh, to make it something better. So what would you say hinders this from being the left's, you know, leading characterization? Because I don't think it is. Um, I think that there is a generational um, aspect to this. So I do think that a lot of younger people who are immigrants or, or grew up uh you know, the, the children of immigrants have a different perspective than mm-hmm. some of the older um, older folks who, who came to this, who immigrated to this country. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of what's different now. Um, but I also think that it's, this is a, goes back a long time, this idea of the left is anti-American and um, it goes back to red baiting in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. It goes back to the swift boating of John Kerry when he, was running and the Republicans said that because he was opposed to the war in Vietnam, that he, he must be lying about his military service. Um, and of course the, the birtherism and the weapons that were used against Barack Obama, just saying that he's not even, that he wasn't born here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's just an example of really successful right-wing propaganda that we've ha- has a long, long legacy in this country and is still, happening today. And I think it's really tricky. I don't actually have the answer about how, how does the left um, kind of build this patriotism that is appealing to people, but also critical of America. It's a hard, uh, it's a difficult needle to thread. But Mm -hmm. I I do think that just sort of denigrating the United States and not uh, that that is alienating to a lot of people. That doesn't mean that that 
we're wrong or that there's mm-hmm. nothing, nothing to criticize about the United States, but it does mean sort of from the political point of view and the electoral politics point of view, I'm not sure what the exact right is, the right way to approach that is. Mm. Well, I, I would like you to expand a little bit on this generational difference between, uh, you know, immigrants and, and their kids here in the United States, specifically when it comes to leftist policy, because it's kind of a phenomenon that, that I've lived through where I am an, an immigrant uh, to the United States from Sudan. And the generational gap between me and my parents, who are also immigrants, is this idea, you know, when I ran for office, they always were, you know, they'd wince a little bit when it came to the critiques that I had of the system, because there was this idea that, you know, you're kind of a guest in this country, even if you have been neutralized and have a citizenship, have citizenship, uh, where you don't question the powers that be as much. Whereas, you know, even though I am an, an, an immigrant myself, I was raised in this country and kind of feel like it is my own a little bit more than my parents. So I've certainly kind of felt the distinction between older immigrants that I know in the community uh, or first generation immigrants um, like my friends. Uh, and, you know, it, it bothers me that in the democratic circles I'm, I'm in, there's sort of this tendency to paint immigrant communities with a large political brush that, you know, paints them all the same. Uh, and so I was hoping you'd kind of delve in a little bit about the differences that you see specifically when it comes to the left and immigrant communities. Sure. I, I mean, I think part of it is that if you had to leave the... Um, if you had to leave your homeland and come here for any reason, you know, uh, political repression or economic opportunity or whatever it was that, that led you to, to make such a radical change, you were, pro- you were trying to get away from uh, a place that, that wasn't working for you, where you felt like you couldn't have the kind of life you wanted for yourself and your kids. So I think that inclines people naturally to have a, a rosier view of the place that they end up in because they felt so strongly that they had to leave the place that they were from. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different. You have a little bit of a different feeling. I think if you grew up here, mm-hmm. uh, you don't just don't have that same kind of life experience. So you, your politics are shaped, you know, by a different set of experiences and maybe you've seen more firsthand some of the ugly things about um, American life and some of the things that, aren't serving you or your family. Um, I write a little bit in my book that even in, in Miami, younger generation of people descended from, from Cubans, you know, people who fled Cuba to come to Miami have more left-leaning politics than their, much more left-leaning politics than their parents and grandparents mm-hmm. because they, because they grew up in the United States and they grew up seeing the discrepancy between what the U S stands for and promises and, and the daily, day-to-day reality that a lot of people, um, you know, are experiencing. So I think those are the main things that I see as as responsible for that uh, tension and that difference. But also immigrants are like any other category of people. They're going to be differences related to age and and life experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, So shifting gears a little bit, uh, you... Uh, talk not only about political figures in the left, but you also talk about organizations. And a lot of listeners might have, you know, encountered uh, names like the Sunrise Movement or Next Generation America. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the influence of youth-run movement-driven organizations, as you title your chapter, on today's political landscape. Sure. I think these groups that can't, you know, most of which came up in the last, since 2016, except for the Democratic Socialists of America, which has been around much longer, but had this huge growth spurt um, since 2015. I think these groups are, you know, it's, they're still very new for the most part. And, and DSA as a, as a larger organization is still really new. Um, But they're having an impact already on, how we talk about things. They have expanded the, they've carved out some space in some of these debates, you know, and, and made room for a broader spectrum of opinion. And I think one of the things that's so ironic is that groups like uh, Justice Dems and Sunrise, they are 
derided and dismissed as kind of crazy radical radicals, radical mm. socialists, far leftists. And when you look at what they're actually arguing for and saying, especially Justice Democrats, you know, they want to return to the New Deal, which is uh, part of our history, our heritage as Americans. That was like we lived through a time where as a country where the government made major investments in jobs programs, where it actually sort of helped people and lifted them out of a depression. And we saw the the power of a government that actually is committed to, um, you know, to defending human life and to giving people a, a dignified life. Uh, and that's what they want. And to me, that's not, it's pretty, especially in a, in a global context, it's actually a pretty moderate uh, set of demands. And it's only in the United States that these, that these groups would, would be or could be characterized as far left. Hmm. Well, I, I think your book shows really well that young people hold you know, a sizable p- political power. Uh, and certainly I'm biased because I'm, I'm 26, but youth voter participation, uh, you know, was the lowest of all age groups this past presidential election. In 2020, turnout for those aged 18 to 24 was 15% lower than the national average and 25% lower uh, than Americans aged 65 to 74. And a lot of, you know, young people are, you know, through these organizations, through just social media trends, they, they are politically engaged, but not necessarily electorally sometimes. Uh, so what do you what do you make of this? Why do you think it is? So I talked for for my book to Shana Gallagher, who was National Student Organizing Director for Bernie's 2020 campaign. Mm-hmm. And one thing she said that really stuck with me was that the young people she met um, in that role was trying to organize to, to vote for Bernie were overwhelmingly either going to support Bernie or were not going to vote at all. Um, and a lot of the people she talked to would just say, oh, I, I don't do politics. I'm not, I just don't do that. Now, why are young people so put off by politics? Why are they disengaged from, at least from voting and from certain forms of electoral politics? I think it's because there's a a real disconnect between behavior and results, right? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people, um, people might, so I'm not, you know, I'm not very young. I'm about to be 40. Uh, People in their 30s and, and people my age voted and voted and voted and then saw in our lifetimes Roe being overturned, right? Mm-hmm. And all I ever heard growing up was you have to vote for the Democrats because they'll uh, get the right people on the court and they'll protect Roe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't happen. They didn't protect Roe. I think, you know, majorities, in some cases, very large majorities of Americans support uh, combating climate change. They support Medicare for all, higher taxes for the 1% cancellation of student and medical debt, abortion rights, and the, and we don't have these things. So if you see this polling, you see this data that says, oh, like between 55% and two thirds of Americans are for these policies, and we don't have them, I think you, you see that there's something broken about our system. And you see that whatever you're doing is not going to have, you know, you might, you might reasonably conclude, oh, you know, voting isn't going to make much of a difference. Uh, I think also, I've noticed this a lot with people my parents' age and people in the, um, you know, baby boomers in general, a lot of them think, well, we we marched and we worked hard and we ended the war in Vietnam. Now, that's not the whole picture at all. That's certainly not the only or even the decisive reason why uh, the war in Vietnam ended. But that is a perception that a lot of people have, right? That they got involved, they did these things, they did these protests, and then there was a change in U.S. policy. Uh, People my age and younger than me have not seen anything like that connection between Mm. um, actions and and political outcomes, political results. In fact, what they've seen is an entire second wave of Black Lives Matter, uh, a a second economic meltdown, ongoing climate catastrophe and an, an insane amount of gun violence. So we're just mm-hmm. have done absolutely nothing to, um, to rein in. And, and, you know, and they saw Bernie Sanders, who's an overwhelming favorite of so many young people uh, so much so that, that people I talked to 
quit jobs, dropped out of school, upended their entire lives to work for him. And he went down in flames both times. Mm -hmm. So I think I do understand. I have a lot of sympathy for young people who think, Mm -hmm. why should I do this? They haven't seen the results. That doesn't mean that voting doesn't matter. I still think it's important to do. I think we have to use all of the tools at our disposal. Um, And we see the cost of of staying home, uh, you know, especially in, in places like Wisconsin, where we have these uh, really, really close Senate races. But at the same time, you know, there's a reason that people behave this way. And I, I can absolutely understand being a young person who doesn't doesn't want to get involved with something that feels like such a dead end. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the Senate races, because my next question was that here in Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson, who is a MAGA Republican, uh, has a huge lead in the Wisconsin Senate race with young men. So a recent Marquette University law poll uh, found that with likely voters, Johnson is up 65% to 33% with men aged 18 to 29. So I think you make it clear in your book that not all young people are leftist. Uh, Would you say that this trend can be attributed to just the increased participation of young people from all sorts of political backgrounds overall? Or is there something, uh, you know, to do uh, with the rise of Trumpism and how our our politics has really changed in the past uh, four or five years? Uh, has there been like a radicalization of, of, of young people uh, on the right as well? Yeah, I think those are both uh, both of the things you identified are true. I think there has been, um, you know, increased turnout for people of all political backgrounds. Also, Trump radicalized a lot of young people in a way similar to, you know, it's not an it's not an exact analogy, but somewhat similar to the way that Bernie um, galvanized young people on the other side. Uh, I, th- you know, young people respond to political polar polarization the way anybody else does. It sort of feels increasingly, I think, to very young people that there are only two options. You can sort of be, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the left, or you can be Madison Cawthorn on the right. And there are these two kind of, um, you know, it's a really, just a really polarized uh, kind of way of looking at our politics. So you're either this, and social media has has uh, played into that as well. But I think that in a system where you're mostly forced into only two choices, uh, people are going to have very different ideas about who represents the lesser of two evils. So even if you're somebody who is not particularly drawn to either either of those, you know, quote unquote extremes, although I, I don't see AOC as, as extreme at all, uh, but let's say you see it that way and you don't like either extreme, I think you you still might draw a different conclusion than somebody else would about who represents the lesser of two evils. So yeah, there are a lot of things going on, but unfortunately, I don't think that uh, waiting for old people to die off is going to solve the political problems that we have. Because as you said, they're not there are plenty of young people who are ready and willing to to support right wing candidates. Yeah, and you wrote kind of in reference to the Trump presidency, but also in a way where you're forward looking, you said, given the failures of the last four years, it's easy to criticize the Democratic Party. Building power outside of it and gaining power within it are much harder. Uh, And so, you know, with this in mind, in this age of Biden, what's next for the left? Where do you see the movement in the next, you know, four or eight years? I think two things. I think the future is local and uh, really where we've seen the most gains are in local and statewide races. There is now a small but uh, crucial socialist caucus in Albany in in New York State where I am. So I think getting involved at that level, and that's actually a good place if you're a very young person to see that voting does make a difference, right? I mean, the first time in my life that I voted for a left-wing candidate who actually won, it was for a state assemblywoman uh, in Brooklyn. So, and that was very exciting. And that certainly never happened to me in all the years I was voting at the national level. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, one major avenue. And the other one I would say is the resurgence of organized labor. I've been tremendously encouraged by 
what's happening at major American employers like Amazon and Starbucks. And we're really seeing also very proud to be from Buffalo, New York, where mm-hmm. uh, the very first Starbucks in the nation um, was organized mm-hmm. and, and it has kicked off this nationwide trend. So I think those are both super encouraging trends that we're seeing in areas for the left to expand it, it, its power and its reach. Um, specifically for these next two weeks, what are you hoping to see during this November's midterms? And what do you think uh, we will see? Um, you know, I would love to see the Democrats not get slaughtered in the midterms. I think mm-hmm. uh, it seems like we'll see some bad losses, but the polls have, have certainly been wrong before. I mean, you know, if you so I don't I think we should always take those with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I think no matter who who wins which specific races, what's really important to me is to see a more sophisticated analysis that really gets beyond that horse race aspect. And to you know, I, I think what people need to do, especially on the left, is really focus in a serious way on, you know, where are our leverage points, how do we build and wield power in whatever the environment is that we have, Mm -hmm. right? Like, let's say everything goes wrong, everything goes the Republicans way. Well, you know, then that's what happens. And we have to deal with the terrain that we Mm -hmm. we find ourselves fighting on. And I think just sort of giving these people this much power, even over our kind of uh, emotional health and well-being is is not healthy. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have this fight with my parents all the time. I think Trump made a lot of people feel terrible because he is terrible and he did awful things and people were scared and unhappy. Um, but we are so much more powerful together mm-hmm. than at any one of these individual figures. And we have rights that they can't take away. We have uh, human rights that exist, whether they're, whether they're enshrined in law or not. Well, thank you so much, Raina. Uh, that was really a pleasure to hear about uh, your insight and your expertise in this. Uh, please pick up uh, the book wherever books are sold. Uh, it's a really great read. Thank you to all the listeners at home uh, for tuning in today. Remember to vote uh, no matter where you are in the political spectrum. Election day is November 8th, but you can vote early in person now until the 6th. Visit myvote.wi.gov to find out everything you need. Happy election season and have a very wonderful wonderful weekend. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from other Unknown positions, live and direct, we come and never be recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison, Wisconsin. Stay tuned for Mel and Floyd.